Well, good morning, everyone. If you're uh, a visitor with us this morning, my name is Dave. Uh, I'm our lead pastor here at Summit Drive, and uh, we have got uh, an incredible privilege of having the Thompson Honor Choir here for the 24th year. And so my message today has been geared a little bit toward having a lot of kids in the room, but guess what? I didn't have time to write a second one, because they'll be sitting in in the second service. And so my message today uh, really is prepared for lots of kids in the room. So it might sound a little bit different to your ears if you're an adult, and um, so just bear with me. And so it's a little bit different as well if you're a guest here, maybe a little bit different sounding than our regular preaching on a Sunday morning, um, but it's just a, jo- it's a joy to be a part of this series that we're working through right now called The Story of Hope. In this uh, series, we're tracing through four of the major uh, threads that run through the biblical storyline and hold it all together. And so, you know, as we enter this season that we're in right now, the one where the days start getting shorter uh, and the snow begins to fall like it was doing this morning, some people just love it, kids especially. You know, um, I want to ask the kid if there are kids in this room, there are not very many. Nope, I'm going to, but you can think for yourself as adults, what do you love about winter? What do you love about winter? I mean, some of you might be thinking the skiing. Uh, others of you are thinking of a whole lot of other things that you don't like right now, but hold on. Making snowmen, snow angels, sledding. I mean, there is a lot to love about winter, but maybe one of the things that makes it incredibly special is that right kind of at the, the darkest, coldest time of the year, we celebrate Christmas. And it can just feel magical, can't it? The lights on the trees and along the streets, the music that is uh, filled with joy and really has this hope sort of built into it. And, and of course, the food. I, uh, I happen to like Christmas and all the traditions around the food. The dinners, the Christmas baking, the mince pies. Oh, man. Um, but there's some parts of winter that, especially if you're an adult, you don't love so much. It's cold. There can sometimes be a lot of snow to shovel, especially if you have a sidewalk in front of your house. And it's dark for way too much of the day. Uh, And did I say that it's cold? Um, You know, as a kid, my favorite season was actually spring. It was, you know, the days were beginning to get longer. Things were thawing out. I was, you know, wanting, like, longing to wear shorts again and play in the mud puddles that are all over our farm. the air was getting warmer, the snow melting, the trees budding. But, but even for those who do love winter, I want you to imagine a winter where spring never comes. And there's no Christmas ever. All of a sudden, winter started looking a lot less attractive. That is the world of Narnia in C.S. Lewis' classic the Lion, the Witch, and the Warbird. Maybe you read it as a, as a kid, or kids, maybe your parents are reading it to you now, or maybe you've seen the movie. We've actually read through all of them. We're just in the last few pages of the last book right now, and our kids have loved it. So if you haven't read it, I, can I suggest you do? It's a fabulous story. But I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the story of Narnia, specifically The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because Lewis was not just telling a kid's story here. He was telling the great story. That all great stories are somehow just like an echo off of. There's these four children, 
Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and they've been sent out to an old house in the country during the time of the Second World War. Why? Because there's air raids, there's bombs falling in London. And so there's a reminder built right into this kid's story of the realness and incredible uh, evil that is present in the world. It's not just a concept but it's a reality of the way that humans can treat one another that is so broken. And that's still true of our time. The end of World War II, we know it didn't didn't spell the end of evil or violence, did it? No. But the story Lewis tells us, he's pointing to the hope for the whole world. Let me show you how. Let's look a little closer. So these children are exploring this old mansion, and they find a wardrobe. It's this place where you hang these coats and other clothing. And Lucy, the youngest one there, she presses through the wardrobe, hiding in a game of hide-and-seek. But all of a sudden, she finds out that in this deep wardrobe, it leads into, and she stumbles into a magical world covered in snow. There's these talking creatures, a man named Mr. Tumnus that she meets. As she comes out of it again, she explains it to the others, and Edmund one of her older brothers, he begins to mock her, say, this is real, it couldn't be real. Well, he finds himself pressing into the wardrobe and stumbling into the land of Narnia as well. And it's here that Edmund meets the white queen of this wintry world. Well, she thinks she's the true queen, but really, she's a witch in the story. So she calls Edmund up onto her sleigh and is suspiciously kind to him. Let me read you a section of the story. Here's what the queen asks Edmund. What would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, please, your majesty, said Edmund. The queen let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center And Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. He was quite warm now and very comfortable. While he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it's rude to speak with one's mouthful, but soon he forgot this. And and though only if trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could, the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. And he never asked himself why the queen should be so inquisitive. So after Edmund stuffs his face, finishes the box, he wishes the queen would ask if he would like a little more, please. Let me keep reading. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if allowed, (laughs) go on eating until it killed themselves. I talked about how I like food at Christmas, and I do, and that's still true. But I found that sometimes when I uh, get in in the habit of eating sweets, I end up wanting more and more as well, a little bit like Edmund. And and I don't think I'm alone in this room in terms of the sweets part. But, you know, this is true in terms of most things in life. See, this is how greed or selfishness works on us. It's this idea that if I had just a little bit more, then then I'd be satisfied. And it's a problem for adults just as much as kids with candy. 
see the desire for more and more, it, it stems from, well, a belief or actually more better put, a lie that if we have more, we will be better off. Uh, there was a man named John D. Rockefeller who started an oil company back in the early 1900s. And uh, he was considered the richest person alive at the time, the first ever billionaire in America because he had billions in the early 1900s. Sometimes he's still considered the, the wealthiest person in, who's ever lived in the modern world. There was a journalist who asked him, how much money is enough? His answer, just a little more. And, and do you see how sad that is? The wealthiest person in the world. But is he satisfied? Does he have enough? No. He needs just a little more. Again, this is the lie that we too can come to believe. That the more stuff or the more money we have, the more content or, or satisfied we'll feel, but we know that it's just not true. Kids, for those of you who are kids in here, your parents probably didn't allow you to eat all of your Halloween candy on the first night, did they? Uh, and let me tell you why. Because they love you. Because it's not good for you to do that to your body, your teeth, your stomach. You'd end up with a stomach ache. They know that it's not good for you. And when we have it, like Edmund, our bodies begin to crave more and more sugar. So when your parents limit how much you take, that was actually out of love out of a desire to see you not form a bad and harmful habit in life. But this same idea is actually true, not just for sugar, but for how much life works. Adults, we know the problem of greed as well. See, when Lewis writes about Edmund, he's actually speaking about all of humanity. He is writing about himself. He's writing about me. And if I dare be so bold, he's writing about you as well. See, Lewis is reflecting on the plot line of the story of the Bible. Now, of course, Narnia is not, not meant to be a one-to-one -one parallel. It, it can't replace the biblical story, but he's picking up on these themes in creative ways, and he's speaking about our human hearts. And as we'll see, this story is meant to be like an echo of how God is working to make right what is broken and lost in our world, to bring our longing hearts back to the place of wholeness and life, back to him. See, at the very beginning of the Bible, we find that God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is in this relationship of love, and, and the universe exists because God wanted it to, made it out of love. That's the Christian understanding. That's what the Bible teaches. And you and I and the whole world are ultimately the work of the hands of the Creator God. God is like an artist designing the universe to reflect His goodness and His love and His beauty. And he made us as works of art that he deeply loves too. And because God is creator, that means he is the king, the true Lord of the whole world. He is the loving ruler who made humans to work alongside of him, to care for the rest of creation, to love God back and to love each other. In the Bible, God is called the king of kings and Lord of lords. But interestingly, not only is God called that, but Jesus, God the Son, who came at Christmas time, that's what we celebrate, is called exactly the same thing, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that is a wink and a nudge to tell us that Jesus, God the Son, is co-equal. 
that shares the, the divine titles and shares the divine nature with his father, God the Father. So humans, you and I, we are most ourselves when we live under the, the loving and gracious reign of the king, made to love as he made us to love. But that sort of greed that we read about in Edmund, it's the same sort of heart sickness that often breaks relationships apart in our lives too. Like I'm not made just to consume and consume and consume some more, but I'm most human and most alive when I live giving. That's how God made me to be. Not a taker, but a giver, a lover. That's what we're made for. When I turn my life out, to serve others. And as we come up to the Christmas season, maybe this can be a little reminder for us to do a heart check too. Often Christmas becomes almost an excuse to just get more stuff. It's believing that lie that if we had more, then I might be more satisfied. And so Christmas even becomes an excuse for some adults just to jump on that greed train. But I want to suggest that just getting more, it doesn't work. It might give you a lift for a moment. You might be excited about a new toy, but it ultimately doesn't satisfy you. Just like Edmund, we find ourselves wanting more and more. And guess what? I know that personally. I'm most satisfied in life, not when I'm adding material possessions to the heap of stuff I already have, but when I get on board with what it means to share with those in need, when I'm living under God's gracious rule, I begin to resonate with the life God made me for. Now, of course we have personal needs. Of course we do. God recognizes that. He meets our needs for for clothing and housing and food and more, for connections with others. That sense of security that comes through relationships. But we can use that collecting as a way to build up our own kingdom and not building up and building into God's kingdoms. Here's a, a couple practical points to think about as we think about Christmas. Um, maybe at Christmas time, the most important thing we can give is not presents, gift wrapped, but presents ourselves. Like being more present, fully present to those around us, to the people God has put in our lives. Maybe it means extending our tables so that we can add more people around them who maybe don't have family to sit with. So maybe this Christmas, give fewer presents and give more presents, more of yourself. Maybe choose to spend less time shopping for people and more time just being with them. And and maybe that means making that decision to limit our spending limit so that we can buy a bigger turkey and create more community especially for those who don't have a place to go. And maybe last, with the money that we save on, you know, not buying gifts for people who already have more than enough, maybe we can conspire together and be even more generous to those around the globe who are in desperate need of the basics of clean water and food and education. Those are things that resonate with the heart of the true king. Those things, I think, are what look living in line with God's kingdom, not my own. Those are some specifics I think we can bring into view at this Christmas. And I don't think it just gets us closer to the heart of Christmas, but will ultimately satisfy us more too. Because we're reflecting the heart of the king, reflecting what we were made for. But here's the big question this morning. How do we move 
from slavery to that self-seeking, that sort of needy beast of a thing within my own heart that just wants more and more. Because it seems, you know, it seems okay and nice to say something like, oh, you know, I'm just going to be more giving and less taking. But you know what? Just willing myself is not going to make a heart change. That doesn't go nearly deep enough. I don't just need a a little tune-up. I actually need a whole new heart, a whole new set of desires. See, what happens next to Edmund, and really, what is the problem for all of humanity? The Turkish delight hate. Do you remember what the queen knew it was? She said it was enchanted, that it will keep pulling at the hearts of those who eat it. Now, it's enchanted in this. It's not just food that Lewis is talking about. He's talking about the condition of living in a world that is truly spiritual and where our self-centeredness isn't just a cute little vice that's really no big deal. No. Lewis is trying to present us here with the problem of our, how our self-centeredness is not something that we can overcome on our own. It's as though we're put under the sway and pulled to keep living for ourselves, and it's something we can't break out of. Now, I know that probably sounds wrong to our ears. You know, we think, well, we can do anything we put our minds to, can't we? Well, that's true. We can, we can do a lot that we put our minds to. We can break bad habits. We can form character to a certain extent. But what the Christian message says is that we actually need God's rescue, that we can't actually save ourselves. We can't put ourselves back into a relationship with a perfect and holy God on our own. We actually need God's work to do that. And here is the wonderfully good news of the Christian message. Even though we have been treasonous, and at the beginning of the Bible, we read that humanity had sought not to love and serve God and obey him, but to do the opposite, to serve ourselves, to turn away from, even though we've been treasonous, not loving the real king as our king, That's not the end of our story. Because God is rich in love. He wants wants to restore that relationship with us and with each other. And so he pursues us. He wants to put the world back into right working order. Just looking at the example of greed that we see in Edmund, we know that this is at work in the real world. That the way that self-centeredness ruins relationships. I mean, families get into disputes over an inheritance kids fight with each other over a toy and instead of growing closer as a family greed can actually break us apart but the good news is that the storyline of the bible we find that god the true king he makes a promise it's a promise to send uh, an earthly king to come who would be a rescuing ruler and who would actually rule forever who would that be in the big story we find that uh, King David, uh, the, man, the, the man who was the little boy who fought off the lion and bear and who killed the mighty Goliath because he trusted in God. That King David was made a promise. He was, he was made king over Israel, but there was a promise that a greater one would come. Someone who would fight the battle, not, not just against an earthly ruler, but against sin and evil and death itself. Someone else would come and fight that battle on behalf of his people. And so this king, God's people are waiting for this king to come, the rescuing ruler. 
Now, if we go back to the story Lewis is telling, we meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. These are talking animals, and, and these beavers, they're awaiting the coming of Aslan, this massive, powerful lion in the story. They're waiting for him to come and break the power that the witch has that's creating this endless winter to bring about spring again. Listen to what Lewis writes in this conversation. Who, who, who is Aslan? Susan asked. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole world, but he's not often here, you understand. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen, all right. The beaver goes on. He'll put all to rights. As it says in the old rhyme in these parts, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. The sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we'll have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. Is is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're braver than most, or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, Mr. Beaver. See, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I tell you, this coming of Aslan, Aslan, to take away the winter and take away any power that this so-called queen has over the world, this is Lewis's way of talking about the Christmas story. You see, in the storyline of the Bible, like the beavers here, there was prophets who long before uh, Jesus came, they were longing for that king. Listen to the words of Isaiah the prophet. This is written around 500 years before the coming of Jesus. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is what Lewis means when he's speaking about this never-ending winter. It's like the world is living in deep darkness, but a light is dawning. There really is hope. And then we read, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. Remember the shepherd boy I was talking about. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Prince of Peace, that's his name. He will reign on David's throne forever. That is the hope that lies at the center of the Bible's story, that the king of the kingdom will come And that hope, Christians believe, is fulfilled in Jesus. The Christmas story is that the baby is born, but not just any baby. It really is God himself entering in a human body and human form. And as Jesus grows up, he begins to teach about the kingdom of God. Listen to the beginning of Mark's gospel. This is the Jesus story that Mark tells us about. When Jesus begins to to teach, he says this, the time has come. The kingdom of God 
has come near. Repent, and that's a word that means to turn. Turn and, and face the king. Give your allegiance to him and not to whatever you were loving before. Repent and believe or trust in the good news. Jesus says that the kingdom has come near. What does that mean? Well, as the storyline is told in Mark's gospel, we find out that Jesus is not just announcing some kingdom that's coming. He actually is the king himself. But the way that Jesus is king, that is not what anyone expects. In Lewis's story, Aslan, the great lion, he agrees to let the white queen put him to death. He's bound on a great stone table. And she thinks that when she kills him, that she at last has actually won. What a mistake. The great lion Aslan comes back to life. Death could not hold him down or beat him. This was Lewis's way of talking about the historical reality of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus, a person, but not just a person, fully God and fully human at the same time. He allows himself to be crucified on a Roman cross. No serious historian doubts that this happened in history, but the Christian claim is this, that they really and truly saw Jesus come back to life. And then they went out into the world to declare that he really is the reigning king. His kingdom really has come. So here's our question. If that's true, if that happened, and I believe it did, what would that mean for us? It's just a few quick points. First, it means that if we put our trust in Jesus, when we acknowledge that he really is the king, then we can find true forgiveness. One writer in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, he says it like this. The Father, talking about God the Father, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. How do we get into the kingdom of light? Here's how. For he rescued us from the dominion or the kingdom of darkness and brought us into or transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption. That means he buys us back. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Everything that we've said that hurts other people, Everything that we've done. You know, Edmund was so nasty to his brothers and sisters after he met the queen. He just became nastier and nastier. Everything that you and I have done can and is forgiven when we trust in Jesus. See, when Edmund is rescued from the the queen, Aslan takes a walk with Edmund. Nobody else hears what they talk about. And then... The three brothers and sisters, they see them, the two of them talking and Aslan brings Edmund back and he says, here is your brother and there's no need to talk to him about what is past. Aslan sets him free. He says, you don't hold anything against him either anymore. He's free because I've declared him free. Isn't that good news? Because that is what I need. That's how Jesus treats all of us who turn to him in trust, that we don't need to look at our past anymore. It is forgiven. Here's the second thing. If this is true, Jesus actually conquered the power of death and was raised to life again. And he promises that we who trust in him will live with him in his kingdom forever. Really? Yeah. 
third, when we trust in Jesus, he transforms our hearts so that we want to walk in close relationship with him. We no longer want to just live for ourselves. That's a process of learning to take that out of our hearts. But when we come into close relationship with him, we want to be about his business in the world, binding up those who are brokenhearted, working to alleviate injustice and evil in the world with grace and courage and kindness. We become truly free. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you hold on to my teaching, you're truly my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus wants for us. Just like that's what Aslan wanted for Edmund in this story. Freedom to become who we were made to be, to follow King Jesus. And he promises that he will return one day to remove all evil and establish his kingdom perfectly in all its fullness. That all things that are sad will come untrue one day. Now, Narnia, it was under the power of the, of the white queen. It was always winter, never Christmas, cold, dark, and never coming spring. But with the coming of Aslan, the spring has finally arrived. Let me read to you what Edmund saw as he was being carried along by the white witch. That every moment, the patches of green grew bigger and the patches of snow melted smaller. Every moment, more and more of the trees shook off their robes of snow. Soon, wherever you look, instead of white shapes, you saw dark green of firs or the black prickly branches of bare oaks and beeches and elms. Then the mist turned from white to gold and presently cleared away altogether. Shafts of delicious sunlight struck down upon the forest floor and overhead you could see blue sky between the treetops. Coming suddenly round a corner into a glade of silver birch, Edmund saw the ground covered in all directions with little yellow flowers. He noticed a dozen crocuses growing around the foot of an old tree, gold and purple and white. Then came a sound even more delicious than the sound of the water. Close behind the path, they were following a bird that suddenly chirped from a branch of the tree. The spring had finally come. That's the Christmas story. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God came, was present, and he was beginning to work out his once-for-all plan to end evil. It's already started. The kingdom has come. Anyone who puts their trust in him is now a part of that kingdom and we get to work alongside of the king to be a part of his business in the world. And we know the Bible promises that he will come again and one day bring the kingdom in all its fullness when the king returns. And now he calls us to trust him and partner with him. Will you? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that... um, that you are Lord and King over the whole universe and that your kingdom is one of love and peace, of justice and kindness. And we thank you that you invite us and call us to live under your gracious rule, to be about your business in the world. Give us hearts to believe this Christmas time that yes, the spring is truly coming because the King has come. And we await the day when you return, Jesus, to make new what's been broken and lost. Encourage us now, Lord, to be a part of partnering with you in your kingdom work this week. Amen.